السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله رب العالمين والعاقبة للمتقين ولا عدوان إلا على الظالمين وأشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده ولا شريك له إله الأولين والآخرين وأشهد أن نبينا محمدا عبده ورسوله المصطفى الأمين اللهم صل وسلم وبارك لعبدك ورسولك محمد وعلى آله وصحبه أجمعين أما بعد Welcome to another lesson of Quranic progression and inshallah ta'ala today we're going to continue with our tafsir of Surah Al-Buruj and we are currently on verse number 5 of this surah. In the previous uh, couple of lessons at the beginning of surah or this opening passage of Surah Al-Buruj Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes a number of oaths as we mentioned. Allah azawajal begins this surah by taking an oath by the heavens and the buruj that it contains and we said that, that means the stars or the constellations or as some of the scholars of tafsir said in the more generic way many of the signs that Allah has created therein from that which we can see from the stars and the constellations and other things that Allah has placed in the heavens and then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes an oath by al-yawmil maw'ud by the promised day and as we mentioned that according to uh, all of the scholars of tafsir is the day of judgment and then last week we covered verses 3 and 4, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse 3 takes an oath by two further things, and that is the shahid and the mashhud, the witness and what has been witnessed. And we mentioned a number of the statements of the scholars of tafsir from the companions and the tabi'een and those who came after them concerning what those two uh, referred to in particular, the many statements that they, that they had. So they said, for example, that they referred to uh, the Prophet وسلم, some of them, and some of them said that it refers to humankind, humans themselves, and some of them said that it refers to the angels, and some of them said oh, it refers to days like the Friday, or the day of Arafah, or the day of uh, Nahr, which is the day of the big Eid, Eid al-Adha, and those other statements that we mentioned last week, and we said that the position that was strongest to Allah knows best is the one that Imam al-Tabari and others chose, and that was that Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned or took an oath by a witness and that which was witnessed and all of these things are witnesses or that which has been witnessed. And so therefore Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he, it is possible that Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to all of these things because there are various narrations uh, in which you will find that is being mentioned. For those of you that attended or uh, tuned in to uh, last weekend when, I, when we did the Al-Isnad course that we covered over the weekend just a couple of days back, and one of the books that we covered was the introduction to the principles of tafsir uh, by uh, Shaykh al-Islam ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala. And one of the things that ibn Taymiyyah rahimahullah ta'ala really stresses is this very issue that we've mentioned a number of times. And I hope for those of the QP students who did attend that or managed to follow that, uh, that it helped you to understand some of these things that we repeated, that it's something which the scholars found that the scholars of tafsir this was their methodology in making tafsir. And that is that they would often mention things by example, or they would mention things by variation, or they would have multiple names for the same thing that they're referring to. And each one of those different statements, therefore, is by way of example or by way of variation and not by way of contradiction. And so that's a very important principle and methodology in terms of understanding the books, the early books of tafsir. Otherwise, if you were to pick up something like tafsir al-tabari, it would be very confusing 
because of the many statements that are mentioned, and not just the Tabari, but the others who then came after the Tabari who also mentioned those statements in detail. So whether you pick up the Tafsir of Ibn Kathir or Al-Qurtubi or Ash-Shawkani or whoever it may be, you would find something very similar therein. But Ibn Taymiyyah gives to us a methodology, and he wasn't the only one. The scholars who came before him as well in Tafsir gave to us this methodology, and that is that you understand the way that the Salaf are describing something, the way that they are speaking in terms of Tafsir, whether it be the companions like Ibn Abbas and Ibn Mas'ud and Ali and others, عنهم, or whether from the famous scholars who came after them of the Tabi'een like Mujahid and Ikrim and Ata' and Sa'id ibn Jubair and Hassan al-Basri and others and so on and so forth uh, as each generation passes. And that's a very good example therefore, verse number 3 of Surah Al-Buruj is a very good example of that, that each one of them is giving something by way of example. And that's why as I mentioned in the Islam course, but just uh, for those of you that didn't attend, uh, it is sometimes better, in fact most times it is better, to study the principles of, the, of, of a science uh, after you've started studying the science as opposed to before, which seems kind of counterintuitive. Uh, you think that you'd have to learn the principles first, and then you'd learn the science. But actually, often when you do that, you don't really appreciate those principles because you have no experience in delving into the science itself. It's like, for example, fiqh. Someone who hasn't studied fiqh and only studies usul al-fiqh, their grasp of the science of usul al-fiqh will be very limited because they're not able to understand those principles in a practical way. And so the methodology that often you will find amongst the Salaf is that they would teach fiqh. You don't find them necessarily teaching usul al-fiqh as, an, as a subject, but they would teach fiqh because people need to know how to pray and how to fast and how to give zakah and how to perform hajj and so on and so forth. And they would teach tafsir, as we've seen, for example, in our tafsir, al-tabari, as we go through al-tabari and other tafsir, the companions are, are teaching tafsir. And they would teach hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam, but they're not teaching principles of tafsir. They're not teaching mustalah of hadith, the science of hadith, or the principles of hadith. And that's because they're teaching these things as they're going through the main sciences. So they're mentioning these methodologies as people are studying them during those times. And then later on, obviously, scholars came and they they formulated them. So, for example, in Usul al-Fiqh, it's well known that Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala was the first one to write in Usul uh, al-Fiqh. Imam al-Shafi'i rahimahullah ta'ala is like, he died 200 years after the Hijrah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. So what about his teachers and their teachers of the companions and so on who taught them Usul al-Fiqh? And so that's something which is important for us to understand that the, the methodology of, of doing this. And so even though now we have the science of Usul al-Fiqh and people have written extensively and it's easy to study in the sense that it's widely available, but sometimes the methodology or the correct approach to it is something which most of us forget or are not necessarily aware of. And so now that we've done tafsir, like over a number of years, to study a book like Ibn Taymiyyah's, to study uh, something similar to that, and even some of these other books, like for example, Al-Ulum Al-Quran, uh, or some of the specials that we do when you speak about Rasm and Al-Dabt and so on, it's better, it's easier to appreciate for someone who has some experience in tafsir, has studied tafsir, has delved into tafsir, and alhamdulillah Allah's uh, grace and his mercy, we've covered a number of uh, different books in tafsir. And so that gives us like a wide uh, scope of being able to understand how then the principles work. So Ibn Taymiyyah's principle then makes sense. What he said, this was the methodology of the Salaf. We know that now from experience because we've mentioned it so many times over the last five years. 
so many occasions, so many examples that we find practically in tafsir. And we've seen this to be a methodology, not just that Ibn Taymiyyah started, but we've given numerous examples of how and Imam Al-Tabari himself often does this. And Imam Al-Tabari, as we know, is one of the greatest scholars of tafsir, as Ibn Taymiyyah himself mentions in that book, that his tafsir is from the greatest books of tafsir that we have available to us. And that's because Al-Tabari, unlike, for example, Ibn Hatim and others, scholars of that close-by generation, or the ones who came slightly before him, they would simply mention narrations, but not necessarily commentate on them. But Al-Tabari commentates. He gathers narrations, his tafsir is a book of narrations, but it's also a book of commentary. He would choose a position and he will commentate and he will say, I think this one is stronger and that one is weaker and so on and so forth. So that's something which is, uh, which is important for us to understand. And then in verse number four, uh, last week we covered the beginning or the, the beginning of the story that is mentioned in Surah Al-Buruj and that is the story of the people of the trench and we mentioned a number of narrations as to different statements from amongst the scholars of tafsir as to which group of people is being referred to within this particular surah. So we mentioned, for example, the famous story of the sorcerer or the king and the boy and the sorcerer. Uh, that's one story that's mentioned, as we said, in the hadith of Suhaib, radiyallahu anhu, sahih Muslim. We mentioned also the statement of others who said that it's the people of Najran or people of Yemen or different kings, like four or five stories I think we mentioned last week, each one of them uh, being mentioned by one of the scholars of tafsir as being the people that Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to. And then we mentioned the statement of some of them that said that this Allah Azza wa Jal is referring to more than one time that this happened in history. And so it's referring to a number of places. So some of them said, for example, three places, one in Persia, one in Byzantine Rome, and once, once amongst the Arabs. Another said it's a number of occasions that that happened. And again, that is to show you a methodology that again Ibn Taymiyyah mentioned. And again, hopefully we were able to benefit from another one of his methodologies that he established within his book. And that is, when it comes to causes of revelation, the companion or the scholar or the tabi'i saying that this is a cause of revelation can mean different things. It doesn't necessarily mean that this story is linked to that thing, or it's not necessarily a cause of revelation, but that even a story that is mentioned as because of a narration that this verse is linked to an incident that, that is mentioned, whether in a hadith or whether from the statement of the companions or the tabi'een, doesn't necessarily mean that it is exclusive, but can also be again by way of example, because they have different ways of, of, of uh, framing and, and mentioning that. And that's why we have uh, these narrations, a number of them, uh, that seem to state or seem to all of them have some connection to what is al-Khudud, or the trench in which there was fire and which people were thrown in because of their belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And so therefore that's another methodology. Sometimes when you have cause of revelation, or you find in the book of tafsir a story that is linked to a verse, doesn't necessarily mean that it's exclusively that thing. But it may again be by way of example. And verse number four is a good example of that because often you will find now in most contemporary tafsirs, for the tafsir of that verse, only the story of Sahih Muslim is mentioned. Whereas if you go back to the early books of tafsir, you will find that actually no, a number of stories were mentioned. And that's why that position of, again, the likes of Imam al-Tabari and others, that when Allah Azawajal says something very generally and can be applied to multiple scenarios, multiple cases, there's no reason why it can't apply to all of them. No reason why all of them aren't, can't be included 
within that verse or that statement of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because numerous people were punished and tortured in that way for their belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala alone. It's not just one or two or three, numerous times in history that has happened and Allah Azza wa knows best how many times. And so therefore when Allah Azza wa says, Qutila Ashabul Khdud, the people of the trench were being tortured or cursed of the people of the trench. It may not just be one place where there were multiple trenches, it may also be multiple times in which those trenches were used for that in that particular way to torture the believers and to oppress them. So now we come on to inshallah ta'ala the next verse that we're going to cover which is verse number five and Allah Azza wa Jal says A'udhu Billahi min shaitan rajim in the translation of Professor Abdul Halim, the makers of the fuel stoked fire and Mufti Taqi, the people of the fire that was rich with fuel and Sahih International containing the fire full of fuel and Muhsin Khan of fire fed with fuel. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number five now gives us a description of or expands upon a description of what were the Ukhdud that Allah Azza wa was referring to. Ashabul Ukhdud, the people of the trench. A further description of those trenches, just so that we can know what type of trenches they were, because trenches are dug for numerous reasons. Right? The Prophet dug a trench in the Battle of Khandaq, the Battle of the Trench in Medina. He dug a trench as a defense mechanism, as a way of defending the city of Medina. But this one, why were these trenches dug? Allah says, Because it was filled with the fuel of fire. The fire pit filled with fuel. And Imam Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala says, and Allah in, in this verse, he says, An-nari, And Nari has a kasra at the end of the ra because it follows on from the previous verse. Meaning there's a description of the khudud. And as we mentioned when we went through the poem of a Zamzami, one of the things that he mentioned at, towards the very end in the final chapter of that poem when he was speaking about the ilmul ma'ani, you know, the eloquence of the Arabic language and the way that it's done, one of the things that he mentioned was al-faslu wal-wasl, connected verses and disconnected verses. Sometimes the meaning is complete by the end of a verse and sometimes no, it's an end of a verse but numerous or multiple verses are connected to one another. This is an example of connected verses. Allah says, قُتِلَ أَصْحَابُ الْأُخْدُودِ But Allah now wants to describe to us the fire. And so he continues with the same i'rab as if it's a description, as if Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is saying, قُتِلَ أَصْحَابُ النَّارِ ذَاتِ الْوَقُودِ right? You could essentially uh, change or exchange one for another because Allah is referring to the type of trench now that was dug and what was placed within it. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, النَّارِ ذَاتِ الْوَقُودِ and Imam Al-Tabari says the same thing that I just mentioned. He said that there is a kasra upon the ra in al-nari because Allah Azza wa Jal is linking this word to the previous verse, linking this to the previous word which is al-khudud. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says and Allah Azza wa Jal in this verse simply says the fire pit filled with fuel because it is known that Allah Azza wa Jal is linking it to the trenches that were dug, that within those trenches then there would be fire that was raging and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says that that they are filled with the fuel meaning that those flames were never allowed to subside they never became weak they were never about to extinguish why that it is filled with fuel 
meaning they kept it alight and they kept it alight and they kept it alight. And that is something which you will find uh, in the books of Tafsir when Allah speaks about how some of the believers were tortured in the fires. Uh, some of the stories that are mentioned about how the believers were tortured in something similar like this when fire is, is, is used. Uh, Allah mentions that often those fires were allowed to blaze for a number of days so that they would be extremely fierce and that they would continue to be ablaze, meaning that the fuel would continue to be added to them. And I think we perhaps mentioned this, I don't remember now if, if it was in QP or if it was when we were doing Tafsir al-Jalalain or Tafsir al-Sa'di, but it's mentioned, for example, in the story of Ibrahim, alayhi salatu wasalam, when he, his people build that pyre for him, that raging pyre. Some of those narrations in the book of Tafsir, and they're most likely Israeliyat, uh, Judeo-Christian uh, traditions, but even so, as we know, like often in the books of Tafsir, you will find examples of that. And again, Ibn Taymiyyah gave us a very good methodology in terms of how to deal with those traditions as well that we covered over the weekend. But the point being here is one of those or some of those narrations mention that they allowed that fire to blaze for a number of days, meaning they kept it stoked. They kept adding fuel to it. So it wouldn't just be a fire that was ignited now, but a fire that had been raging for a number of days. And some of those narrations say that it was such a large pyre, the fire was so big and vast, that in order for them to be able to throw Ibrahim into it, they had to use a catapult to catapult him into it. Those are what some of the narrations say, and Allah knows best concerning their authenticity. But the point is that it establishes a, a general principle here, and that is that Allah is saying here that this wasn't just a fire, like a small fire that you have, for example, at the, in your back garden, or that you may see when there's a barbecue, or that you see like sometimes on the road when it's just something small. We're not talking about that type of fire. We are talking about a fire that blazes, a fire that continues, a fire that is there for a great deal of time. Uh, and so that's why Allah says, filled with the fuel, ذَاتِ الْوَقُودِ Meaning that it's the, the property of the fire, is that it is constantly being fueled. That is the description of, of the fire. Um, and that's what Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, or before we go to Ibn Ashur, Ibn Qayyim, rahimahullah ta'ala, did, said the same thing as Tabari concerning the Arabic of this verse, that the word Al-Nar uh, is to show or to be, in, in some ways there is a description or a replacement for the word Khudud. So Allah Azza wa is saying that this trench is a trench of fire. So it's a description of the fire and it is a description of, of what is being found therein. Ibn Ashur, rahimahullah ta'ala, he mentioned in his tafsir the same thing in terms of the Arabic language. Um, but then he says that Allah Azza wa says al-waqood with the fatha and the waw. And what is, what, what is meant by that is that which is used to fuel a fire. He says from oil and from uh, from wood and from other things that are used in order to ignite and to fuel a fire. And he says, and then when Allah Azza wa says, that, الوقود, that it is fueled with fire, meaning that its flames are never allowed to subside. Its flames are never allowed to subside because every time they are about to, they throw into it more fuel, more fuel, more fuel. And so it continues to rage and it continues to be uh, extremely hot. And that's why, as we mentioned, I think before, some of the Salaf were of the position um, that the fire was used by Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala not only to, um, not only to punish those people 
uh, or the, the people that were thrown into the fire, but then it also became a punishment for the disbelievers that cast those believers into the fire. As Rabi ibn Anas rahimahullah ta'ala said, he said Allah Azza wa Jal took the soul of the believers away as they were being thrown into the fire. From his rahmah, Allah Azza wa Jal took away their souls before they could touch the fire in order to save them from that punishment. And then the fire came out and it consumed the disbelievers that were watching and bearing witness to what was taking place. And that's because as we will see now in verse number 6, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes the situation of the people who were there witnessing this torture and this oppression towards the believers. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then says in verse number 6, إِذْهُمْ عَلَيْهَا قُعُودٌ When they sat around it. That's the translation of um, Professor Abdul Harim and Sahih International when they were sitting near it, Mufti Taqi when they were sitting by it, and Muhsin Khan when they sat by it, meaning the fire. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, Idhum alayha qu'ud. And Imam Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala says that Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in the previous verse that the fire was ignited and was ablaze and was constantly being fueled. And then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, and they were sitting there, meaning that they were watching on the banks or on the sides of the trenches that had been dug. They were watching to see and to bear witness to this, uh, to bear witness to this destruction or to the torture that was being carried out. And that's why, um, you know, some of the scholars of Tafsir mentioned that these people must have had a great deal of hatred in their heart, because to punish people in this way or to harm them in this way or to uh, execute or kill them in this way, uh, meaning by burning them alive, is horrendous in and of itself. But then to actually sit there and watch it, and to cast your eye over it, or to like you know watch it as if it's like a something that needs to be watched and needs to be uh, needs to be witnessed in that way, because the the Arabic of this verse and some of the statements of the scholars of Tafsir also show that the way that they're sitting isn't just soldiers that are sitting there in terms of doing a duty, but that the people came out in order to bear witness to this because they wanted to see this type of evil being done. Just like, you know, sometimes it reminds me of sometimes what we hear about the Romans and possibly even the Greeks, but the Romans were known for them for this in their Colosseum where the people would come out and their version of entertainment or what they considered to be entertaining was people killing one another and fighting one another and animals being let loose like lions and bears and what have you being let loose upon people and, and slaves often and they had to defend themselves and fight and kill each other and the animals and, and all of this stuff and they would consider this to be uh, entertainment for them and that's why for example Mujahid rahimahullah ta'ala he said these people sat upon chairs meaning they brought out their couches and their chairs and their you know, and and the and and the places where they could comfortably sit, in order to see these people being tortured, because of their belief in Allah Subhanahu wa Taala. And so, this is a position that you will find of some of the, uh, some of the people that are being referred to. However, there is a uh, a slight difference of opinion amongst the scholars of Tafsir, as to who the they refers to. When Allah Azawajal says, "Idhum alayha qurud," the whom, when they sat around it, because alayha means so whom means refers to they who are the they are the are they the people that are being thrown into the fire meaning the believers 
or rather the disbelievers that are watching the believers being thrown into the fire. And the reason for this difference is because of the word alayha. Alayha is to be upon something, to be on something or in something, right? That's the word ala. Ala means to be on something or in something or above something. So who is it that's actually in the fire, that's actually on the flames? It's the believers. And that's why you will find some of the scholars of tafsir took that position. So it's the believers. So for example, Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala, he said, إِذْهُمْ عَلَيْهَا بِذَلِكَ الْمُؤْمِنِينَ He said that the, when they sat upon the flames, meaning the believers, إِذْهُمْ عَلَيْهَا قُعُودٍ So he says, Allah Azza isn't describing here now the disbelievers and what they're doing, because that's the other position of tafsir as we said. He's saying, no, it's the believers that Allah Azza is describing to show their uh, the, 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 the punishment that they were subjected to, the torture that they endowed, the oppression that they faced, that they were placed in these flames as if they're made to sit on them, meaning that there's so many of them being thrown and cast in as if they're constantly, uh, or they're made to lie down and, and, and fall into these flames. Um, and so he's referring to, and this is a position of Qatar, as we said, from the scholars of the Tabi'een, and some of the other scholars followed him in this as well. Although the majority took the position of Mujahid and others, and At-Tabari and others, rahimahumullah, and they said, no, here Allah Azza wa now is referring to the disbelievers. The disbelievers is the one that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is referring to. And that is that they're sitting there watching. As we said, Mujahid said that they had their chairs out on their thrones and they sat there watching comfortably as these believers were being cast into this fire and they were being tortured for their belief and as we mentioned in all of the stories pretty much that we covered last uh, week that spoke whether it's the story of the the king and the boy or whether it's the story of the people of Najran or the people of 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 Yemen or whatever it may be all of those different stories the one thing that they all agree upon is all of those people uh, whenever they were being thrown into this fire they were given a choice either you apostate from your religion turn away from your belief and then you'll be saved, meaning that we won't punish you. Or if you're going to stay upon your religion, then we will throw you into that fire. And that's where we have those stories of the woman who hesitates and then the child says to her, go forth because you're upon the truth. Sheikh uh, Muhammad Al-Amin Ta'ala, he said that this word, hum, as we said, the they in this verse, إِذْ هُمْ عَلَيْهَا when they were sitting upon it, uh, there is a difference of opinion concerning who is it referring to. Some of the scholars said it refers to those who were thrown into it and burned therein, in which case the alayha makes sense. They're thrown into it, so the alayha, they're on it, they're in the flames, they're on the flames, makes sense, they're being consumed by the flames. And others said that these words, hum they are sitting on it, refers to the disbelievers. He says, in which case the alayha, we need to understand what it means here. Because how can they be outside of the fire yet be described as being upon the fire or in the fire? He says, um, the position that we mentioned last week of Rabi' ibn Anas, he said to so some of the scholars took the position based upon this, that the fire came and consumed them as well. So the believers were thrown in, Allah took their souls, so they don't feel that punishment, but they die there in either way. And then the fire comes out and it consumes them, meaning Allah turns the, what they used as a punishment for the believers, turns that punishment 
to be their source of destruction and punishment as well. In which case they too are in the fire or upon the flames of the fire. And he said, and also it is said, so if you don't take that position, because that is only one position amongst the scholars of tafsir, that they were consumed by the fire, meaning the disbelievers. Some of the scholars said that, but not many of the scholars, or not all of the scholars of tafsir took that position. He said upon the second position that they that the fire didn't consume them, he said then the word ala in Arabic language is often used to mean be to be near something or to be on the edge of something. So for example, the Arabs say nahr, or al-bir. You say this person was sitting nahr, on the river, meaning on the banks of the river. Al-bir, upon the wall, meaning on the wall of the wall. And the Arabs say nazala fulanun ala ma'i kadha. So and so settled on the water, meaning by the water. And so the Arabs often use the word ala to also mean near in the Arabic language. So therefore when Allah says idhum alayha qu'ud, when they were sitting upon the flames, meaning that they were near the flames, in which case that obviously then from the Arabic point of view also works with the other verses that we mentioned uh, or with the other uh, positions of tafsir that we mentioned, that it's referring to the disbelievers, that they weren't necessarily consumed by the fire, but that they were sitting and they were bearing witness to this. And look at how now Allah Azza wa Jal in, in these verses is speaking about these people after Allah Azza wa Jal mentioned at the beginning that everything will be witness or they will be witness to. And Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then gives us an example of that which will be a witness and that will be witness to. These people were being tortured for their belief and they were being tortured for their, uh, their, their desire to worship Allah Azza wa Jal alone and to, and to believe in Him alone as the one worthy of all worship subhanahu wa ta'ala. And then the torture that they suffered and the oppression that they suffered in whichever time and place that it occurred, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is, is saying that all of these things are witnesses. The day that they were upon is a witness. The land that they were upon was a witness. They themselves are witnesses to what took place. Their bodies and their limbs will be witnesses. The angels were witnessing what took place. All of these things are witnesses that Allah azza wa will call if he so chooses on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And that's why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala then in verse number 7 speaks about the witnessing and watching. And he says subhanahu wa ta'ala in verse number 7, وَهُمْ عَلَى مَا يَفْعَلُونَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ شُهُودَ Watching what they had ordered to be done to the believers, meaning they were witnesses to that which they ordered to be done to the believers. To watch what they were doing to the believers, that's the translation of Professor Abdul Hanim Muhsin Khan says, and they witnessed what they were doing against the believers, i.e. burning them. And Mufti Taqi, and they were watching what they were doing with the believers. And Sahih International, and they, to what they were doing against the believers, were witnesses. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala in this verse, now verse number 7, speaks about the issue of shahada, of being a witness after Allah Azza wa mentioned, as we said in verse number 3, he took an oath by the shahid and the mashhud, by the witness and that which is witnessing. So these people were witnesses to that which they did. And that's why as we know Allah Azza wa Jalla on Qiyamah, when you will ask those people from the disbelievers who they will accept to be witnesses, they will ask for the different witnesses that will come and eventually they will refuse to accept anyone's testimony except their own. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will seal their mouths and he will make their limbs speak as Allah Azza wa Jalla mentions in a number of places in the Quran. Not only that, but the land that a person is upon Numerous ahadith 
that speak about how the land and the earth were witness for people as well. And not only that, but there are other hadith that even animals and inanimate objects will be will be witnessing for people on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. Like the hadith, for example, of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam that speak about the Adhan. Right? The Adhan, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam said about the Mu'adhin, that no one hears or nothing hears the sound or the voice of the Mu'adhin calling the Adhan, except that it will be a witness for that person on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And that's why some of the Salaf or some of the companions used to say to some of their students that even if you're out in the desert by yourself, then make the Adhan. Meaning that you're going to pray, there's no one else, there's no jama'ah, there's no congregation to be done. You're by yourself and you're traveling. They would say then make the adhan even if you're out in the desert. Meaning call the time for salah and then you pray by yourself. Why? Because they would say because of this hadith. That nothing hears your sound or your voice except that it will be a witness for you on Yawm Al-Qiyamah. And so all of these things are witnesses that Allah may call, if he so pleases subhanahu wa ta'ala, on the day of judgment. وَهُمْ عَلَى مَا يَفْعَلُونَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ شُهُودٍ And these people were also witnesses to that which they ordered to be done to the believers. Al-Imam Al-Tabari rahimahullah ta'ala, he said that the disbelievers that are being mentioned here knew what they were doing. And they forced them into this situation because they gave them the choice as we mentioned in these stories in these narrations all of them pretty much agree on this point whichever one of these stories you say is being referred to even all of them and that is that they gave them the choice of either having to leave their religion or that they would be placed into the fire and one of the things that this shows is how um, how shaitan corrupts the minds of people who when he wants them to oppose the religion of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala they're willing to go to this length. They're willing to go to this length in order to harm the believers and harm people in the time, uh, in the, the people of Iman. And that's why in the hadith of Khabab ibn Arat radiallahu an, that is clicking in Sahih al-Bukhari, when Khabab came to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in the early days of Mecca, when the Muslims were being persecuted and many of them were being tortured and some of them had even been killed at the hands of Quraysh, and the Prophet ﷺ, in the hadith, it is said that he was leaning in the shade of the Kaaba. And Khabbab came to him and he said, O Messenger of Allah, would you not make dua for us? Would you not seek Allah's help for us? Do you not see what we are facing? So the Prophet ﷺ sat up and he said, O Khabbab, indeed from the people who came before you were a people who one of them would be taken, a hole would be dug for him in the ground, he would be placed therein, and then a comb would be brought and his skin would be raked, his flesh would be raked from his bones. And another one will be brought and placed in that hole and a sword will be brought and he will be sword in half. And the story that we mentioned, the story of um, of uh, the one in Sahih Muslim, of the king and the boy, mentions that particular uh, punishment being given to those people who believed in Allah Azza wa as a result of the da'wah of that boy. And so that's something which the Prophet reminded him of. And he said, But you are a hastening people, you are a people who are hasty. And so Allah Azza wa has saved us. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala keep us safe and us and our families and keep our iman strong. But people go through major trials for their iman, major trials for their faith, as Allah Azza wa shows within these stories. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from his greatest blessings is that he gives to people not only iman, but he gives to them safety by which to practice their iman, in which by which to be able to worship Allah Azza wa in relative safety and comfort. And that's why Allah Azza wa when he speaks to the Quraysh as we covered in Surah Quraysh, one of the greatest things that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala 
mentions to them of his blessings of them at a time when all of the Arabs were engaged in civil war, in a tribalistic society where people are constantly trying to kill one another and uh, do one, uh, uh, overcome one another and take the wealth of one another and usurp each other's positions and lands and so on, the people of Quraysh were safeguarded because they were in the Haram and they were the custodians of the Kaaba. And all of the Arabs venerated Mecca and the Kaaba and therefore by extension Quraysh. He gave you provision in a land where there was no food, no drink. It's not a place of cultivation. It's not a, but Allah Azza gave you provision because of all the pilgrims that come and the commerce that comes to you. And He gave to you safety at a time of fear because that's how the majority of the Arabs used to live in fear. But the Quraysh had relatively, relative good safety at that time. That's from the greatest blessings of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And it is a blessing that I think often we forget or we neglect or we take for granted. And that is that Allah Azza wa Jal, for the vast majority of us, may Allah Azza wa Jal keep that ni'mah upon us, uh, is the, the, the ni'mah of safety, that you can go to the masjid and you can worship Allah Azza wa Jal. You can go to a lecture and you can attend and you can worship Allah Azza wa Jal. You can go and seek knowledge and travel for the sake of knowledge. And it's relatively easy for you to do in the sense that you don't have to worry about your life or your property or your family or your children as you leave your house and as you come back in or as you seek to travel and you come back in. Those things Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has given to us relative guarantee and safety for. But imagine you can't go out of your house to the masjid. You can't go and seek knowledge. You can't leave your house because you fear for yourself and your family. You feel you, you, you'll be persecuted. You feel You fear that if someone even knows who you are, your name, or that you're a Muslim, or that you worship Allah alone, that you will be persecuted for that. Imagine how difficult that would be. Because to worship Allah in that situation, in terms of doing the, the actions that are public in Islam, like for example, wearing the hijab, like for example, wearing the thobe, like for example, having the adhan, praying Eid outside, even going to the masjid and having masajid openly and so on and so forth, those things become very, very difficult for, for a group of people to do. And you don't have to go very far back in history, but only if you go to certain places where there was, for example, communist rule in Eastern Europe and other places, the way that the Muslim communities and those what were at one time and still are um, majority Muslim countries, they went through a great deal of difficulty in terms of being able to practice their religion. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives to you this ni'mah, the ni'mah of, of blessing. And even in the seal of the Prophet wasallam, at the beginning in the Meccan period, it was difficult for the Muslims which is why the vast majority of the companions in the early days used to conceal their iman. It's only the Prophet ﷺ that's going by the Kaaba and praying openly. It's only a handful of companions that are openly known to have accepted Islam like Abu Bakr and Bilal and some of those companions. And even those that were known to have accepted Islam would often keep away from the gathering areas of Quraysh and where they would sit and their majalis, their gatherings and their, and their places where they would congregate they would stay away from those places and they would worship Allah Azza wa Jal privately. Like the, the, the narration of Abu Bakr radiallahu anh, Abu Bakr radiallahu anh in the early days of Mecca, migrates by himself, leaves the city of Mecca, wants to go by himself. And so someone finds him on the way as he's leaving and that man is a, another tribal leader but a man of position and power. He says to Abu Bakr, where are you going? And he says, I'm going to worship my Lord because these people don't allow me to worship my Lord. And so meaning Quraysh. And so he said to him, someone like you, Abu Bakr, should never be made to leave. You're someone who's kind and generous and you help the poor and needy and you're a person of integrity and, and such a person like you, come back with me. I will speak to the Quraysh on your behalf. 
So he said to the leaders of Quraysh, because he's also a leader of his own people and his tribe had, had its standing in Arabia, he said that I give him my protection. The Quraysh said, okay, if you're giving him protection, we're not going to break your word to him, but tell him to worship his Lord in his own house. Don't let him come out and worship outside publicly. And that's what Abu Bakr did for a short period of time until they, uh, they, uh, they, they got upset and so on. But the story is well known in the books of Sirah. But the point being that this is also something which, uh, you know, which, which shows that even at the beginning of Islam, in the early Meccan period, during the life of the Prophet وسلم, safety wasn't a guarantee. And that's why the Prophet in Mecca doesn't build a masjid, doesn't have jama'ah, doesn't have congregational prayer, doesn't have gatherings of knowledge like you see in the city of Medina, where the companions in numerous hadith will say we were once sitting and the Prophet came amongst us, or he had something to say, so he said he called the people and he gathered them together in the masjid and he gave us a sermon. All of those hadith you find in the Medinan period. You don't find them in the Meccan period because they don't have the ability, they don't have the capability, they don't have the place and the space and the security and safety that is required in order for them to be able to congregate and worship Allah Azza wa in that way. And so Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala speaks about this in different ways in the book of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. But it is a reminder, a reminder that we should thank Allah Azza wa for this ni'mah of being able to seek knowledge and to learn. Because when you're worried about where your, your food's going to come from, when you're worried about your safety and the safety of your family, when you're worried about whether you will live to see the next day, whether, when you're worried that someone may come and break down your door and, and, and imprison you or torture you or worse or whatever it may be, then you don't have the mental capacity to be able to do many of the things that you would like to do, especially in terms of open worship, in terms of public and congregational worship, although people may continue to worship Allah Azza wa Jal privately, obviously, in their homes and so on and so forth. So, therefore, this is something which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells us here. These people went through a great deal of difficulty to be placed in that situation where you're given a choice between life and between casting yourself into a trench of fire. And remember that this is also something which the Prophet said that the Jal will bring, that he will have a river of fire and a river of water. And his water is fire and his fire is water. And so the Prophet in some of those narrations said that if you're told to choose one of them to fall into, then fall into his fire. Because he's a liar. His fire is in reality water. But that takes a great deal of iman, a great deal of certainty in Allah and in the words of the Prophet for a person to be able to willingly make that choice, to go against everything that they can see outwardly and to trust in Allah and in what his Prophet said. And so likewise, these people had to go in. But Allah also shows to us in this way that they were people of strong iman, therefore, that their iman was strong, that if they had to make such a choice after they had seen the signs of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, it was sufficient for them. They submitted to the will of Allah and they weren't willing to apostate or to leave or to renegade from their religion based upon the threats of those people that were threatening to torture them in this way. And that's why Qatada rahimahullah ta'ala said that this is referring to those disbelievers who tortured the believers and were witnesses to that which they did to them. They were witnesses to that which they did to them. Uh, Al-Imam Al-Qurtubi rahimahullah ta'ala, he says that the it was the disbelievers that Allah is referring to that they would say to those believers that you must 
disbelieve or apostate from your religion. So whosoever disagreed, they would throw them into the fire. And Allah Azza wa Jal describes them as being harsh and hard-hearted in that way. Because you would have to be. Because as we can see from those narrations, that we're not just speaking about young men or men, the elderly were being thrown in, women were being thrown in, children and babies were being thrown in. And so Allah Azza wa Jal, or Imam Qurtiba says that these verses show that those people were hard-hearted that they were willing to exact that type of punishment not only upon the men but upon all of those people that were believers in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Uh, and that's why he says that some of the Arab, uh, the grammarians or the scholars of Arabic language said here that the word ala in this verse وَهُمْ عَلَى مَا يَفْعَلُونَ بِالْمُؤْمِنِينَ شُهُودِ that the word ala here means ma'a that they are witnesses to that which they were doing with the believers because of the way that they were uh, punishing them and making them fall within that fire. Muqatil, um, uh, Taala, he said that the word shuhud here, or the witnessing that they're doing, the the, the witness what they're witnessing, um, isn't not only, isn't necessarily the fire that these people are being thrown into the fire, but it is their belief that they are wit- that they are testing to or testifying to and that is that they are testifying by their actions that the believers are upon misguidance when they refuse to worship their idols or refuse to worship the gods that these people were worshiping besides Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala so Muqatil says يعني يشهدون أن المؤمنين في ضلال حين تركوا عبادة الصنم that they're testifying and bearing witness to the misguidance of those believers because they forsake the religion of those disbelievers, whoever they were, casting them into the fire. And so the meaning is pretty similar, but there is a difference here and it gives you an added meaning. And by the way, Muqatil uh, in his tafsir often does this. It's a very, uh, you know, if you go through the, the statements of Muqatil in, in his tafsir, and Muqatil is one of those people, by the way, who in hadith is not considered to be very trustworthy as a narrator or dependable as a narrator. But in tafsir, you will find all of the books of tafsir mention his statements because he was known to have the khasus specialism in tafsir and often what he does is he looks at the statements of the scholars or of the teachers that he came across the the people of or the scholars of tafsir that he came across that came before him and so on and so forth and then he picks something which gives you an added meaning that perhaps you didn't really realize before these people are witnesses to what they're obviously witnesses to the obvious which is the punishment that they're they're, they're, they're carrying out upon the believers but they're also witnessing by their actions that they consider themselves to be upon the truth and those people, the believers, to be upon falsehood and misguidance and so this is also something that they are testifying to and that is really takes us back to the crux of this issue because Allah is telling us here that from the things that Allah that people will, the greatest testimony that they will be called to give on Yawm Al-Qiyamah is the testimony of Iman and Kufr of belief and disbelief. That's what the testimony is for. More than anything else and everything else, it is the testimony of whether these people are believers, whether they accepted Iman or they rejected Iman. And that is when the hadith of the Prophet وسلم, when Allah will call out the Prophet Nuh and Yawm Al-Qiyamah and he will say, Oh Nuh, and Nuh will come before his Lord Subh'anaHu Wa Taala. Remember Nuh is the Prophet that spent 950 years calling his people to Allah 
alfa sanatin illa khamsina ama. 950 years. And Allah Azza wa inshallah, when we come to Surah Nuh, it's an amazing description that is given of Nuh alayhi salam, that he called his people by day and by night, in open and in secret, in groups and individually. Like basically every single means of da'wah that was available to him at his disposal, he he uh, performed or he carried out da'wah in that way. And so he spent a lifetime, many lifetimes, according to our time anyway, many lifetimes calling people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So Allah Azza wa call Nuh alayhi salam. And he will say, O Nuh, hal ballaqt, did you convey the message? And Nuh will say, yes, O Allah, I conveyed your message. And then Allah Azza wa will say to the people of Nuh, his nation, hal ballaqakum Nuh, did Nuh convey the message to you? And they will say, ma ja'ana min nadir. No warner came to us, no prophet came to us, no one told us about belief. So they will deny. And they will falsely accuse, therefore, Nuh salam of being a liar because of the statement that he makes. So then Allah Azza wa will say to Nuh salam, who are your shuhada, who are your witnesses? And he will turn around and he will say, oh Allah, it is Muhammad and his nation, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Muhammadun wa ummatuh. Muhammad and his nation. So Allah Azza wa Jal would then call uh, us or the Ummah of the Prophet and he will ask us, do you testify that he conveyed? And we will say, yes, so Allah, he conveyed. So Allah Azza wa Jal will ask then, how do you know what he did? Because we're not alive at the time of Nuh. We don't know what Nuh did or didn't do. We weren't there. We're not witnesses. So we will say, oh Allah, because it came in your book, in your revelation, in your words, your speech, you told us that this is what Nuh did. And this is how his people responded. And that is the statement of Allah Azza wa Jalla, as the Prophet then said, the verse in Surah Al-Baqarah, at the beginning of the second juz of the Quran, And thus we have made you the balance, the middle path nation, so that you may be witnesses upon mankind, and that the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam will be a witness upon you. And that is why the Prophet ﷺ has that position. He is a witness upon everyone. But this Ummah also has this position because of what Allah gave to us in his book in the Quran of the stories of these Prophets. And so therefore, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is speaking in this in this uh, surah, in Surah Al-Buruj, about these people and about what they did and about their actions and about what they were witnesses to and about what they were willing to do and the, the lengths they were willing to go to in order to harm those people for their belief in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And this is a common thing that you will find in the Quran. When we look at the different stories of the prophets, simply for saying they believe in Allah, that they want to worship Allah Azza wa alone, how often were people tortured and punished? Obviously it happened in the time of the Prophet wasallam, the early Meccan period. All they did was say, La ilaha illallah, that was enough for those people to, to go and harm them and kill them and persecute them and torture them and so on. But it's also something that you will find throughout the Quran that Allah Azza mentions throughout the different stories of the nations. Are you willing to kill a person simply because he says, My Lord is Allah? I am Allah, only Allah Azza wa That's the only one that I want to worship. Look at the story of Ibrahim and Nimrud when he has that debate with him, the time rule at the time of Ibrahim. Salam. Look at Musa salam, and Pharaoh. Look at all of those nations and the way that they would call their people to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala and the way that those people would respond in the worst of ways because of that call of la ilaha illallah which shows 
that it's not about anything other than as what shaitan promised to Allah Azza wa Jal in the story of Adam alayhi salam when Allah Azza wa Jal cast out Iblis from Jannah and from the heavens and he told him to go and then he asked to be given respite until Yawm Al-Qiyamah and Allah granted him that respite and then he said to them ثُمَّ لَآتِيَنَّهُمْ مِنْ بَيْنِ أَيْدِيهِمْ وَمِنْ خَلْفِهِمْ وَعَنْ أَيْمَانِهِمْ وَعَنْ شَمَائِلِهِمْ وَلَا تَجِدُ أَكْثَرَهُمْ شَاكِرِينَ Allah, I will come to you this creation of yours in front and from behind and from the right and from the left and you will find that the vast majority of them are not thankful or grateful to you for that which you have given the meaning of guidance and so on and so forth and so he gave that promise لَأُغْوِيَنَّهُمْ أَجْمَعِينَ I will misguide all of them إِلَّا عِبَادَكَ مِنْهُمُ الْمُخْلَصِينَ except the few sincere slaves that you have from amongst them and so this is the promise that he made and therefore that shows you because rarely do people go to extremes like this for many things but they will do it for something like this because it is shaitan that is the one that is behind them and the one that is leading them and the one that is making these actions seem good to them and because they follow the footpath of shaitan or those footsteps of shaitan the commands of shaitan and the whims and desires and their own whims and desires, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala will give them their punishment on Yawm Al-Qiyamah as well. So inshallah, I think we'll, we will pause there for today uh, in the tafsir of Surah Al-Buruj, and then inshallah ta'ala next week we will continue with what Allah Azza wa Jal mentions in the conclusion of the story, and how Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala responds to, uh, to that which these people did towards the believers. Um, okay, we have a question here. Last time you mentioned that Ukhdud is plural of trench, so would a more correct translation be the people of the trenches, plural, instead of the people of the trench, singular? So the Arabs often use the plural and the singular interchangeably. Often this is done in the Arabic language. Um, so, for example, when Allah Azza says Jannat in the Quran, we have Jannah and Jannat. Jannah means garden or paradise. Jannat is his plural, paradises. But in the English language, we still translate it as being, as being paradise. And so that's because Jannah is one in terms of, you know, like the, 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 the category, like paradise is one in terms of the concept. But obviously paradise has many levels, so it's multiple levels as we know as well. So that's something which, uh, which the Arabs do often. They, they, often uh, they often interchangeably use the singular and the plural. And so yes, trenches, because there were multiple trenches that were dug, whether it's in a single time or whether it's during multiple times and occasions, but at the same time, the concept of the trench and the punishment of that way can be used as a singular. So both are correct, like there's not a problem using it either way in terms of the translation and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala knows best. Okay, so inshallah ta'ala, we will conclude there for today. Barakallahu feekum wa sallallahu ala nabiyyina Muhammadin wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in. السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته